Starting next week, Laura and I will be teaching you, along with the teaching team, um, a lot of us are controlled by our moods. No point. I know that, uh, you know, maybe you say, she sure is, or he sure is, but Laura and I really struggled with that, and there's some real secrets in the Bible, even if it's a depression, and we're going to talk about how to, how to get over that, but all of the, the different moods that we have, we don't have to be controlled by that. Our life can be more than we ever dreamed that it could be, and I want you to be with us for this next series mood swingers, and we're going to find out how to change our lives. Te quiero, Marco. Je t'aime, mon amor. I love you, Mark. I love you too, Laura. When we served as missionaries in Mexico City, we learned something really interesting, really important, and it's the reason that the Bible has been translated into so many languages across the course of the years, and that's the fact that each of us have a heart language. Did you know that? Even if you understand more than one language, you have one particular heart language that your heart responds to. It's usually taught to you by your mother. It's that language that she used when she comforted you as an infant, singing those songs, praying over you, whispering in your ear, that maternal voice that she used. The Summer Institute of Linguistics says that each of us has a single heart language and it's the language we use naturally when we want to understand and to be understood, when we want to communicate something deeply. I can say I love you to Mark all day long in Spanish, and he understands it because he understands. But when I say it in, to him in English, in his heart language, it's totally different. It provokes a different response in him. It calls out to his heart. Nelson Mandela said, if you talk to a man in a language he understands, that goes to his head. But if you talk to him in his language, that goes to his heart. That's what we're talking about this morning. We want to share with you some very important words of Jesus that are recorded in the scripture, and they're so important that the writers of the scripture wrote them down verbatim, exactly as Jesus said them. They didn't translate them into Greek like they did the rest of the New Testament. They're Jesus' heart language. They're written in Aramaic. Jesus grew up in a multicultural, multilingual society. Hebrew was spoken in the synagogue and in religious circles. Greek was used in the marketplace. But in everyday life, Jesus used Aramaic with his family, with his friends, with everything going on in his normal life. And we're going to see today two instances where Jesus very clearly spoke in his heart language Aramaic to the heart language of those who are listening to him and the 
powerful impact that it had, and so powerful that the writers of the Bible wrote it down exactly in his words. The first instance of heart language we're going to look at was on that very first Easter morning. So let's look at it. It's in John chapter 20. You'll see it up on the screen. Some of it's there in your sermon notes. If you want to open up your little worship guide there. Very early Sunday morning before sunrise, Mary Magdalene made her way to the tomb. And when she arrived, she discovered that the stone that sealed the entrance to the tomb was moved away. So she went running as fast as she could to go tell Peter and the other disciple the one Jesus loved. This is John. He's writing it. He could never get over the fact that Jesus loved him. And, and so he pins every time the disciple that Jesus loved instead of putting his name. She told them, they've taken the Lord's body from the tomb and we don't know where he is. Then Peter and the other disciple jumped up and ran to the tomb to go see for themselves. They started out together, but the other disciple, that's John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He didn't enter the tomb, but peeked in and saw only the linen cloths lying there. Then Peter came behind him and went right into the tomb. He too noticed the linen cloths lying there, but the burial cloth that had been on Jesus' head had been rolled up and placed separate from the other cloths. When it, it, it says the linen cloths were lying there, literal translation of that phrase is were still in their folds. The, the, the strips of cloth that they had put around Jesus' body when he died and they had been anointed with burial ointment which stiffened them up. It was there as if a body was inside it. It was still in its folds. It was still there, just the body wasn't there. And then the, the head covering was neatly rolled up beside it. So you see that there. Verse eight, then the other disciple, this is John, who had reached the tomb first, went in and after one look, he believed. Literally, he saw and believed. John was the first one to believe in resurrection. For until then, they hadn't understood the scriptures that prophesied that he was destined to rise from the dead. Puzzled, Peter and the other disciple then left and went back to their homes. Mary arrived back at the tomb, broken and sobbing. You're saying, well, the tomb's empty. Why did she come back? The same reason that a husband who's lost a wife that he loves so much returns to her grave and, and talks to her about life and what's going on and how the kids are doing and all that. It, it, it's as if you can't imagine life without them. Why is she broken? Because to add insult to injury, she thought someone had desecrated Jesus' tomb. His body was gone. The tomb was empty. We know the tomb was empty because when the apostles began to preach later on, if the tomb hadn't been empty, we know that those Jewish leaders would have just marched people right down to the tomb and said, no, there's his body, and the apostles would have been laughed out of town. Chuck Colson, who was... President Nixon's right-hand man, he said, I was involved in a conspiracy, the most powerful man on the planet and 10 of his most powerful aides, and we couldn't hold a conspiracy for two weeks. Someone had said to Chuck Colson, uh, you know, I think the disciples created a, a conspiracy to, to maybe hide his body or something. And he said, from one inside the Watergate scandal telling you who's been to prison and Chuck Colson found Christ in prison. 
He said, I can tell you, watching those men buckle around me, who I thought were so powerful, he said, I can guarantee you one of those apostles would have turned and would have gone to the authorities and taken a payoff instead of the excruciating deaths that they experienced. Boiled in oil, crucified upside down, thrown to the lions, stoned to death. All of those different things that happened to them. So if you're here this morning and and you're a skeptic, I want you to know that you're welcome here. We welcome you. We welcome questions and we look for those answers together. This is the perfect place to be if you're just kind of wondering and thinking, trying to figure this this whole thing out. I want you to go on with Mary as she stoops to peer inside. Look at those verses. She stooped to peer inside and through her tears, she saw two angels in dazzling white robes sitting where Jesus' body had been laid, one at the head and one at the feet. Dear woman, why are you crying, they asked. Mary answered, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. Then she turned around to leave and there was Jesus standing in front of her, but she didn't realize that it was him. He said to her, dear woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Mary answered, thinking he was only the gardener. Sir, if you've taken his body somewhere else, tell me and I will go and... Mary, Jesus interrupted her. Turning to face him, she said, Rabboni, Aramaic, for my teacher. We find Mary here sobbing, standing outside of the tomb. Excuse me. She still thinks that Jesus is dead and that his body's been stolen and she's crying there. And when she looks in, she sees two men inside. The Bible says that they're angels. And they ask her, dear woman, why are you crying? And in the early light of dawn, they seem to be looking beyond Mary and not at her and she turned around. John Christostom, fourth century theologian, believed that Mary turned around because she saw the expressions of love and worship on the faces of the angels as they saw Jesus appear behind her. Turning, she saw a man standing there and she supposed him to be the gardener. And he asked her the same question, dear woman, why are you crying? It's interesting here that the same question was asked twice. And I think that's important because all through scripture we see things repeated twice and things Jesus would say twice and it's to give an emphasis to that. There's something important here. There's something important about this question. He's saying, why are you crying? You're crying for the wrong reason. You're crying thinking that Jesus is dead and gone and his body's been taken from here. But it's not true. Your tears should be tears of joy and thanksgiving. And there seems to be kind of a a gentle rebuke here that Mary should have and could have known that Jesus had risen from the dead. Jesus had clearly shared that several times. You see it all throughout scripture. But for some reason, Mary wasn't aware of it today. If you look back through scripture, every time Jesus shares with his disciples that he's gonna be crucified, He also says, and on the third day, I will rise again. He talks about his resurrection. Now, he had a hard time, obviously, convincing them that he was going to be crucified. But for some reason, all of them seem to be deaf to his promise of resurrection. And Mary's in the very same place. Isn't she just like us? I mean, how often do we forget the promises of God, right? I mean, a difficult circumstance comes into your life and suddenly those promises that you maybe have learned since childhood just fly right out the window. And all of a sudden you're anxious and you're introspective and you're depressed and distressed. You feel sorry for yourself and you've totally forgot the promises of God. Mary's fallen into that same trap. 
Martin Luther once spent three days in a really dark depression. He was upset about something that had happened in his life that wasn't going the way he wanted it to go. And on the third day, his wife walked downstairs and she was dressed all in black like she was going to a funeral. And Martin Luther looked at her and he said, who's died? And she looked straight at Martin Luther and she said, God. And Martin Luther got kind of upset with her and rebuked her and said, God's not dead, God cannot die. And she said, well, Martin, I thought it must surely be true by the way you've been acting. <laughs> and I thought, how often... I have been there. Yeah, how <laughs> often do I do that? How often do you do that? We forget the promises that God has made to us, and that's exactly what's happened to Mary. She, she didn't recognize Jesus at first. She had tears in her eyes. It was blurry. She thought he was the gardener. But Jesus only had to speak one word to change everything. Her eyes opened. She knew immediately who it was. He called her by her name. And we see in the original text that he called her in Aramaic, her heart language, Miriam. Suddenly, everything came into focus. She knew that name. She knew that voice. It's the same voice that had called her all those years ago out of sin and darkness and hopelessness, Miriam. It was Jesus, and she knew it. And she responded in Aramaic. Mary flung herself at Jesus' feet, and she was crying, and she says, Rabboni, in Aramaic again. Now she's crying for the right reason. Now she knows that Jesus is alive. She knows that he is her Messiah, her Savior, the one that he claimed to be, and he's right there in front of her. She responds in her heart language, Rabboni. Theologian W.F. Albright interprets Rabboni as the diminutive form of rabbi, my dear rabbi, kind of a term of endearment. And it may have been the name that Mary used for Jesus all across the years. But I want you to look at the Aramaic for just a minute. That first syllable, Rab, means master. And if you say Rabon, it means great master. And when you add the last syllable, Rabboni, that makes it personal. It's my great master. It may have been a term of endearment, but on this day, at this moment, it became a term of worship and surrender. Here was her personal savior. I wonder today if you've ever heard Jesus call your name. I remember as a child, my parents took me to church from the time I was born. And when I was seven years old, I first heard God calling my name. And I remember again about age 12, he called my name again and I knew he wanted me to share my faith with the people in my life. At 17, I heard him call me again and tell me that he wanted me to live a life of service to him. And I remember again at 19, coming home from college after a tough second semester there and just being in my bedroom at night and really crying out to God like, I can't do this anymore. I need you to take over, you to handle this and do this. Bravo, me. Be my great master. And he did. Everything changed. And I'm not saying across the years that he hasn't called again and again, over and over. There have been times when I've wondered, times when I've doubted, times when I've turned away. But every moment, Jesus was there and he called back and he called my name. That's what he does. He always calls us back. The Bible says that Miriam immediately went and told the disciples. 
Luke 24, 11 says, but these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. Jesus hadn't yet called their name. He hadn't called out in their heart language. Maybe for some of you today, the words that we're speaking seem a little bit like nonsense. Maybe you're the skeptic that Mark talked about and that's okay. Our prayer today is that you would hear Jesus call your name. That it wouldn't just be my words or Mark's words. If, if that's all it is, then Easter is just a nice American holiday. But when Jesus calls your name, everything changes. Whether he's calling you for the first time or he's calling you back. That's our prayer this morning. The second time that we want to look at that uh, Jesus' words in his, in his own heart language are recorded verbatim makes resurrection really personal. It's the story of Jairus. Jairus is a, a man of wealth. He's a ruler of the Jewish people. And he's got prominence and prestige, but he has a big problem. His little girl, 12 years old, is sick. And she's really sick. I'm sure Jairus' wife had talked to him and said, hey, honey, you, you need to go talk to this teacher. He's putting his hands on people and healing people all over. Go ask Jesus to come heal our daughter. And he's saying, I don't know if I can do that. I'm a leader of the, the Jewish people. They don't like him. They, that just wouldn't be seemly to them. And then his daughter takes a bad turn for the worse and he's desperate. So he goes and throws himself down before Jesus. And he says, Jesus, please come and heal my daughter, if you'll just put your hand on her, she'll be healed. So they begin to walk together. And as they're walking, a messenger comes from his house, a, a servant. And he sees on the servant's face something that he doesn't want to see. And the servant says this, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your little girl is dead. A father's nightmare. Worst nightmare you could ever have. His little 12-year-old daughter has died. Jesus looks him right in the eye and he says don't be afraid any longer only believe don't be afraid any longer only believe and they go on to the house Jesus gets the whole big funeral group out they're wailing and, and doing all of this and he just takes in Jairus his wife and a couple of his disciples and he stands before the body of the little girl and this is where he speaks again in Aramaic and he looks at her let's just read that verse together he took hold of her hand and said to her Talitha kum which means time to get up little girl Aramaic you could also say get up little lamb arise little lamb it's probably how Mary Jesus mother had awakened him every day of his childhood Time to get up, little lamb. Time for school. Time to get up, little boy. And he says just simply that to this girl. He simply commanded her to live. And she opened her eyes. It's the same voice that spoke and a billion, billion stars came into existence. It's the same voice that has brought life to every living thing that's ever had breath on this planet. And he says, arise, little girl. Talitha kum. Now, you know, one of the things that I, I love about the Bible is sometimes you start to study it and when you get down, think, oh, I think I found a mistake. And then you find out as you study more that it's more accurate than you thought that it was. 
the, the proper spelling of Talitha Kum in, in uh, Aramaic should be, because she's a little girl, the feminine is Talitha Kumi. Arise, little girl. And so it looks like a misprint. In fact, some of the later translators in English put Talitha Kumi. It might say that in your Bible because they know that's the correct form. But what we discover is that the dialect that the people spoke in Jesus' day in his area, they intended to drop off the ends of the words. And Peter is dictating what happened to Mark, who's writing it down in his gospel. And Peter, because he was one of the disciples there, he's saying, and Jesus said, Talitha Kum. When I was in Mexico City, uh, we would say, if you wanted to say more or less, you would say, mas o menos, right? Mas o menos. But then I went to Nicaragua to work a little bit. And if you're here from Nicaragua, God bless you. I don't know if it's Spanish or not, but <laughs> they said mao meno. Instead of mas o menos, they did mao meno. And, and that's because their dialect, their accent is to drop the ends off. So I was understanding about half of it. But that's exactly what's going on here. Jesus just drops the end, talitha kum. That's how he said it. Peter's telling Mark exactly how he said it. Mark's writing it down exactly like it sounded. It's so amazing when you get into it. Jesus didn't put on a show. He, no one had ever seen anything like this, but he just said, time to get up, little lamb. And like she had done every day of her little life, up to that moment, she opened her eyes. When her mom had said, get up, little one, she opened her eyes just the same way and Jesus says give her something to eat you know I, I look on TV sometimes and you see like the televangelists and they're like blowing on people and slapping and, and and like throwing their twirling their jacket and you know I don't know kind of just interesting things right you're going to be healed and then they slap you and you fall down if they slap me that hard I'd fall but <laughs> what I love about Jesus is it's just so everyday it's so normal it wasn't a show Talitha Kum, little girl, little lamb, get up. And she opens her eyes and it's resurrection power in normal everyday life. So real and so personal. Now, I'm not saying that he's always going to heal us. You understand that Jesus doesn't always heal. We've seen many miracles here at Community of Faith. But we also know that he chooses not to sometimes. You know, if everybody always got healed all the time, no believer would ever die. We'd all just be hanging around, right? But here's the thing. He's always there to speak to us. He's always there to talk. To, he sees death so differently. I want you to hear the words of G. Campbell Morgan, the great British pastor. A hundred years ago, his firstborn daughter, Gwendolyn, was at the point of death. And years later, preaching on that passage that we just read about, Jairus, little girl being raised from the dead. He said these, let me just read it to you. I can hardly speak of this matter without becoming personal and reminiscent. Remembering a time 40 years ago when my own first daughter lay at the point of death dying. I called for him then and he came and surely said to our troubled hearts, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. But he did not say she shall be made whole. She was not made whole on the earthly plane. She passed away into the life beyond. But he did say to her, Talitha kum, little lamb, arise. But in her case, that did not mean stay on the earth level. It meant that he needed her and he took her to be with himself. 
and she's been with him for all these years as we measure time here. And I have missed her every single day, but his word to me, do not be afraid any longer, only believe, has been my strength through all of these passing years. Have you heard his gentle voice in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your addiction, in the midst of your depression, in the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of your lostness, your purposelessness, trying to figure out what life is all about. And he's saying, if you could just hear him in the spirit realm, Talitha Kum, little girl, I see you. I see where you are. I see the hurt in your heart. Rise up. Come with me. Little boy, it's time. This is the time. Come with me. Be with me. In John eleven twenty five, Jesus says the most amazing thing. He says, I am the one who brings people back to life. And I am life itself. Those who believe in me will live even if they die. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die forever. Do you believe this? Jesus didn't speak these words during a lecture on philosophy. He didn't say them and write them in a book of poetry. He spoke them to some people who had just lost their brother. And he meant it. And he understood. I am life. I am resurrection. You see, Easter really isn't an event. Easter is a person. What, what happens is that the witness of Easter becomes a window for us to really see. What do I mean by that? The Bible says that when John and Peter were running to the tomb, Peter went in, he didn't know what to think, but John went in and he saw and believed. What did he see? He didn't see the body of Jesus. He didn't talk to Jesus. He just saw the evidence. And he remembered what Jesus had said. He believed that Jesus rose from the dead because Jesus said he was going to and then his body is missing and he sees the evidence. Mary, on the other hand, talked to Jesus face to face. We're more like John. We see the witness and it becomes a window for us. Let me just give you a really quick illustration of that. Imagine with me that a friend of yours knocks on the door late this afternoon and, and says, your cousin Jim just died. And you say, well, I can't believe that. I was just at the Easter service with him this morning. I, that, I can't believe. Yeah, we went to the game and we, we were leaving the game and a car jumped the curb and hit him. And the medics came. I was right there. He was right beside me, but they couldn't save him. And I, I saw him die. Your cousin Jim is dead. And then you say, I see. What do you see? You, you didn't see it, right? You, didn't, you weren't there, but his witness to you became a window on the event. And that's what we're talking about. I'm praying that the words this morning, that the changed lives at Community of Faith, that the evidence of Jesus rising from the dead becomes a window for you to see, to really see. And I'm praying by the grace of God because that's the only way we can do it, that you really see. Sometime in these next few weeks, if you will come 
the next few weeks of this new series, you'll not only learn how to overcome depression and how to get fight through your moods, but I believe that you will see that God will show himself to you, that Jesus will be real. Now, the difference between that little illustration that I gave you and Jesus is that Jesus is alive. It would be like someone bursting through the door right at that time when you start to cry and said, no, Jim is alive. I just talked to him. I just saw him. I just experienced him. And that would change everything for us. One of the things that Jesus gave us to do, it's so interesting. The first step after believing, he says, I want you to be baptized. And to our modern mind, dipping underwater, what is that? What does that look like? How does that feel? I don't get it. That doesn't make sense to me. Why didn't you ask me to do something hard for you? This is strange. But that baptism is the window for us. He's saying, just as this person's going under the water, I died and I rose again for you. And as this person is going underwater, they are dying to their old way of life and they're rising to a brand new life in me as a new creation. It's an awesome window for us. So I couldn't think of a better way to end an Easter service than with some people who are stepping out and saying, they were just like you and they're saying, my life has changed. I've stepped into believing. Jesus has changed everything. And if you could hear all their stories, they're so amazing, but they're gonna be baptized right here, right now in front of us. Does that sound good? So I'm gonna ask you to stay in your seats. Don't take off. I know it's gonna be traffic after, but this is why we're here, right? The band is gonna lead us in a song. Come on out, band. We're gonna watch some people that have stepped into faith being baptized as we praise our risen Lord. Would you stand with me? And let's begin to praise him.